Good evening, everyone. I hope you're having a fantastic weekend, and um, I hope you listened to the podcast last night and got to hear from Margaret Couplet, who is publishing her first um, book with Cobblestone Press um, that is in my archive, and you can go back and listen to that later. But pay attention to me now, me, 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 and in a minute or two, Jilly. Okay, so... um, Tonight we're going to do a writer's table, so get your questions ready in the chat. Um, we're chatting on Discord, um, and I did not put the thing um, in the chat, and I probably should. Um, anyway, if you don't know how to get to Discord, um, just send me a message on Facebook Instant Messenger, and I will direct you in that direction. Um, <clears throat> A little housekeeping uh, for Rough Trade. Your project files are due March 25th. Practically, there are only like four or five left to be done, so congratulations. Great job, you guys. Um, The alpha and beta reader science close on the Quantum Bang on March 31st, so if you're interested in volunteering to be part of that group, you need to do so pretty damn soon. And the sign-ups for the Every Fandom Reverse Bang close on March 31st. And for those of you in the chat room, I will give you a link to every fandom bang. If you if you don't, if you're not in the chat room, um, the um, every fandom bang is at every fandom bangs with an S com. And if you look up every fandom bang in Google, it will pop right up. Um, they have two bangs that, that go out through the year. Um, they have a regular bang. Then they have a reverse bang. How many times can I say bang in this podcast? And also, every time I say it in the back of my mind, I go to a terrible place that exists only because Ellen and that man who did that terrible American Idol um, and and got is terrible. She bang bang. I, I I it's just there. It's there. Um, and now it's in your head too. You're welcome. So uh, their regular bang is closed right now. It'll reopen in August, but their reverse bang is open through the end of this month. Um, and I think that is all the housekeeping we got as far as that goes. <laughs> that I'm very ladylike, unladylike um, snort is um, is uh, I blame Dark Serafina for that. Anyways, I'm gonna get Julie on the air, and um, we're gonna get started on this um on this um kiss kiss bang bang yeah um on the. On the stupid podcast, for fuck's sake. We had our art friends this morning. We did. They, they were, went really well. They were they were super fast. Um, I think we had 18 people in the first, like, 90 seconds. <laughs> it, got, it was fierce. <laughs> it was fast. It was fast and fierce. Um, yeah, it's funny how we get so much matched up in the first 10 minutes, and it's like, Huh, and this is there is this funny little conundrum that happens with with bang claiming, reverse bangs, whatever, is like you can have every single piece of either story or art on somebody's list 
And you'll still get to the end and have stories unclaimed and artists without stories or authors without art. It's just the way the shakes out when people do things in rank order. So on the average, for those people who were freaking out out there, average approximately is that every story was on about six people's wish list. So every story had interest, um, but it just is that thing. You get to the end and you're like, well, huh. <laughs> now I got to go figure out how to cover these last few. But <laughs> every story had a lot of interest. It was very, it was great. That there was so much diversity in people's interests. Um, and, uh, we all we had three artists who submitted. Uh, we had three more artists submit to to take art than we had art to give. So um, they're going to claim in May. So uh, do finish up your stories. We will be doing a mini a mini art claim in May. Seeing some of you guys have finished up recently, so congratulations on that. Um, but you know, honestly, I think the Quantum Bang has been very successful. I mean, I honestly expected that we might have like 10 stories that were completed. I was hoping for 14. That was my outside number was that we'd have one story a day to post during the during the posting period. Um, but we have 25 we, completed right now. Yeah, and I think pretty much. There are other people who are very close to crossing the finish line already for May. So um, I would guess we are easily going to double, maybe even have three stories a day. Wouldn't that be lovely? You guys are to get nothing done in June but reading Fix It Fix. <laughs> Which is good because then you won't be fixating on your July rough trade like I do every year. That's right. Everybody's like sitting on their hands. I more on my short stories than I do any other thing in the whole year. Mhm. Yeah, and I think and I rethink them and think and rethink and uh, terrible. Okay. 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 So if anybody has questions, do the thing. Put it out there. Do the thing. We've been doing a thing. We've been doing a um, one sentence prompt for. Yeah. What, about a week and a half now? Yeah. We've done, what, Maybe five yeah. of them? Is it five? five? Six, five. I'd have to look. Hold on. I'm going, I'm going to my website. I'm going to peruse that. We have One, six. two, three, four. We have six, yes. Two Stargate, one Hobbit, two MC, two MCU, and one Mothership. Yep. And it's been fun. It's been fun. I like, I do like this two to 5,000 word length. It's, uh, it's, it's kind of a length I haven't played in before. Um, and I've been all over that length. Usually when I, you give me a maximum, I hit the maximum. That's usually the way I work. Um, and I've only really gotten close to the maximum once. I hit it right on the money one time. And then otherwise they've been more in the 3,000 word range. Um, mm-hmm. But it was really like, I like it because it feels like I can actually write um, a, a, little, a little bit of a story. It's not like just like pumping out one scene. Um, mm-hmm. 
On the other hand, it's just enough to kind of prime me to really take off and go. So mm-hmm. sometimes that wasn't an, an issue as much, and in other stories it was like, oh, my God, I have to stop. We I hovered on the mothership one. I was like right there, and if I think I think if I'd have written one more sentence, I'd still be writing. My closest to I'm about to take off was the Hobbit one, um, and um, probably the second closest to I feel the need to was that that um, the the as Sentinel Guide one we did it was a different kind of world building. Yeah, that was really cool. That was that was like okay I finally what could that one was a little bit difficult for me because I kind of stumbled with it at first because I was pantsing world building on the fly and I don't usually pants my world building not like that <laughs> so I I had a stumble because I felt like I'd kind of written myself into a corner and then I had to rewrite a, a big section the next day once I'd gotten it clear in my head how I was not going to make my world building obnoxious and um once I, but once I got it straightened out, I was like, oh, I don't want to leave this alone now. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I had to, to go stay back and to play. That. I mean, you know, I might have to go back to it because it's it's really interesting, um, the choosing. Um, it's different. It was interesting. Like it. It, it was and I had never, I had never written. Uh, one of the things I kind of alluded to it, but it sh- I didn't actually. This little thing made a little bit more blatant than alluding to it. But I've never written a story where Sentinels and Guides only come online together. Um, so there will never be more Sentinels than there are Guides, and there'll be more Guides than there are Sentinels. They always come online in pairs. So um, and together. So that was actually something completely different than anything, even, even to a weird degree, even more so than the spirit guides choosing. Um, Cause I'd done some world building around that, something kind of a little bit similar with the whole thing about the, the temple that I haven't written yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea is that all guides only come online in pairs and then always would be even, you know, match numbers of them. That was so far away from what I typically write that it, I was sort of challenging my head canon twice. Um, but I really liked both things. So I think it'd be really interesting. Um, I was thinking about how I could do it in November in Spokane and Divergence because I've been kind of that. It's just the idea of it's really inspiring. And I thought to myself, well, what if um, what if when Ronan joins um, the expedition? He points out that there is a um, like there's this annual ritual that takes place on this world where people can go and ask for gifts, and they assume these gifts are coming from the ancestors. Kind of like the temple that he used in the shrine that you know that was a, a, a ritual of sorts for people who got that disease. But that and so John, being who John is, and they're in the position that they're in with the, with the race, he goes and petitions the the uh, the temple, and um, he gets turned into a sentinel. It's just been kind of because it's canon divergence, but then it would be like sentinels never existed on Earth, so it's it's interest. It's it, it wouldn't be a crossover. It would be like a fusion. 
I guess it'd be a fusion. So, I've been thinking about it. What are you thinking about over there? Did I lose Julie? No, I've been sitting here talking to you, and the funny thing is your responses seemed like that they were gelling with what I was saying, so I didn't realize I was muted. Um, <laughs> until you said, what are you thinking about over there? And then I was like, oh, I'm muted. Hmm. <laughs> so what do you think of that? <laughs> no, I like it because it uh, it would be – I think it would be a fusion. Um one one definition of fusion, anyway. There's two types of fusions. Of course, fandom has to have two definitions for everything. Um, but yeah, it would definitely be a Sentinel Guide world building fusion, and you would. Um, I think it's a really interesting way of approaching canon divergence that would allow you to do a Sentinel Guide a Guide AU. Um, I like that a lot. I like it a lot, a lot. Let's see. I think it'd be really interesting. I mean, I don't know. Um, I kind of even forgot what I planned, but you know, we already have a plan for for November. We have a plan, but we we could have met, we could have we could wind up with options, and then when November gets closer, we choose amongst the options. This is true. Because we're both the sort that usually plot at least two or three things, if not more, for November. So um, we will probably come up with other options between now and November. What was our first option? I've forgotten. I wrote it down. The Winter Soldier can, can divert, can, uh, can of Divergence, um, where Steve can, sees Bucky and, and he confronts Natasha and says, you "Oh know. yeah, yeah, I already have a whole, I already have a whole notebook on that." So, so. <laughs> I don't know how that fell out of my brain. The notebook's sitting right here in front of me. Probably because um, my guess is how it could fall out of your brain is because we've been doing these short stories in Marvel. Um, me in preparation for. April, um, but it probably just felt like the, that notebook felt like something you're working on right now as opposed to something you're working on for November. Yeah. That's not actually my concept. Um, uh, someone in the chat room talked about um, the noble Harry um, Potter and the Earl of Gryffindor. Um, the noble trope is huge in the Harry Potter fandom. Um now, when I wrote Harry Potter and the Soulmate Bond, I wasn't um, online in the fandom. I really had never had any exposure to um, the Harry Potter fandom. Um, so I kind of wrote that in a vacuum, and then I had to go back and edit it. So a lot of the things that I put in that um, were influenced by fandom because I just didn't know what the fandom was doing. Mm. Well, I mean, there are sometimes um, somebody else may have like it, it, when it comes to like most concepts, it's hard to track down who did them first. But you do sometimes people who you know a lot of people get introduced to tropes through you, especially people who don't read a ton in the Harry Potter fandom. 
mm-hmm. might only know certain tropes through your work. I've never seen a lot of ritual magic in Harry Potter fandom, and um, that's always been very disappointing to me, which is why I like to um, – well, I, I really like to explore it because it just seems to be missing. It's missing large. It's missing largely in canon. The only ritual we get is Voldemort's resurrection. Yeah, I mean, and considering all the pageantry, you know, you would think that they would ritual magic would be a natural thing for these over melodramatic fuckers, but you know, no, apparently not. said resurrection but in my mind I thought erection so I'm just really glad that resurrection came out of my mouth because I was sitting here thinking did I say erection no if I said erection she definitely would have laughed <laughs> uh yeah, I think the whole podcast would have been like whoa <laughs> the, the only ritual we saw was Voldemort's erection hmm. <laughs> what what ritual was that Kira not the one any of us wanted to see. No, I don't think the arrival of the other schools counts as a ritual. It's more of a pageant. Um, yeah. But when it it's comes definitely to ritual pageantry, magic, but... it is... We mean... There's... there's And really, honestly, all the rituals that are even alluded to in canon are dark. Well, yeah, but they just talk about dark rituals. They don't actually really get into them. <laughs> I was at the point where I was like, can we see some dark rituals? That'd be great. Yeah, I mean, you know, at this point, what are these I don't want to see a what are these... Horcrux thing. Because so, I heard that involved yeah. cannibalism. But, um, yeah. Well, but it's kind of anyway. like, you know, um, can we see some dark rituals? Because I'm curious, you know, what that's like. Mm. Well, okay. I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go there. I'm not gonna go there. It just seems a little crazy to say, you know. It's sort of like you're you're swimming in a vat of butter, and you know when people ask you why you chose to eat this one thing, you say it's because you know you're trying to cut down on your fat intake. You know, it's just like. <laughs> It's like, aren't you kind of swimming like neck deep in this thing that you're avoiding already? Denial. It, we all we all have it. We all have our denial, but that's okay. Okay. So, did anybody have a question? Did I miss a question while we were talking about Dumbledore's erection? No, I mean Voldemort's erection. <laughs> Somebody's erection. It just it just went so wrong. It just went so wrong so fast. It has gone so wrong. And it's really gotten unappealing at this point. For <laughs> those of you who are curious as to where Lady Holder is, because she's not in our chat room, she's out in the world having a real life. And if you have Facebook and you're a Facebook friend, you'll know exactly where she is. I'm not bitter, though. Well, I'm a little bitter. Just because she's out of the house, not because I actually want to go do what she's doing, but she's like, she left yeah, the house. Yeah, I'm so just like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, well, she is doing something fun. It's not, it's not, it's not what I would, I would choose personally, but um, 
it, it was fun, and, you know, there's probably beer on hand, and so that there's nothing wrong with that. Okay, so um, Susan does have a um, writing question. Oh, wait, she has more than one. Let's see. Was there one yeah, up above? She's... Oh, okay. I'm trying to um, find it. I must have to go way up. Okay, repeat your question because I can't find it. <laughs> the first question. We had the second question. <clears throat> Even if you don't like beer, there comes a point when you're drinking that you can't taste anything anyway, so it stops mattering. Just saying. Or is that just me? Uh, no, I mean, but most places that serve beer, there's usually wine too. Although I don't, I actually don't know. I, or wine coolers. I'm projecting. Yeah. Uh. Or pansies. Um. Okay, that first question might be coming back. Um. Let's go ahead and ask the second question. Um, answer the second question while she's writing the first question. Okay. Um. Second okay, question you and you, was. Go ahead. Go, Go ahead. ahead. Go ahead. All right. Said so we're both you, plotters. You, you and Karen, you are both plotters, um, or somebody. I don't. I got like this cut off. Okay. When you talk about your plotting, you mentioned outlining your plot points as a way to estimate your story length. How detailed do you get with those plot points? The Sith war happens. Vader chops his son's hand off and admits he is the father. Type thing. Um, hmm. More the second. Well, but, because I'm creating an event timeline, so I need to have events. You know, Vader chops off Luke's hand, admits he's his father. Luke tries to commit suicide, ends up down on the antenna, calls for his sister. <laughs> I'm an eventer. I have to have my events in order. And sometimes I rearrange them when I'm writing, but I have my events. So I'm an eventer. I'm an event writer, so... Um, Jilly. Yeah, I, I'm, I, I would say the same thing as I'm, I'm focused on events, but I would say that I probably in the same length story would write down half the number of events that Kira does. So, um, um, I'm looking at major events more so, and even to some moderate, medium-sized events, Kira's a little bit more... Um, detailed in that regard than I am because I've seen her plot points. Um, so I, you know, I would be like, I guess I have some frame of reference that that I would be have about half the amount individual plot well, points. Because yeah, she um, saw my plot point document for my quantum bang, and then she saw my quantum bang. So you can see the the progression of my idea versus my finished product. Yeah. Um, whereas I, you know, for the same length story, even if I were to have the same number of actual events happening in the story, I would probably still write down about half the number of plot points. Um, where my, um, where I usually wind up off when I'm estimating my word count is that I tend to underestimate. Like I'll note that there's a conversation that's going to have to happen. I'll know that in my my outline, but I'll underestimate how how many words that 
conversation is going to take. Um, that's where I tend to estimate wrong the most is when I think a conversation is going to be a thousand words and it's 5,000. <laughs> and then I think that, you know, I do make some of that up because I tend to overestimate how much, um, some transitions and narrative stuff are going to take. So, you know, sometimes it all comes out in the wash, but I do tend to come in usually a little bit over, over budget, over what I expected. My word count issues come up when I, um, if I have to insert events after the fact, when I'm writing, if I stumble across a hole or I stumble across a ramification that I didn't take into, um, into account when I was plotting, um, that's where my word count fuck-ups will happen. Well, so, and sometimes, because I've seen you do this, you also have a really good idea that you didn't wouldn't wouldn't have occurred to you until you worked through the writing. And, like, right. you get somewhere and you go, oh, oh, my God, this is a really good idea. And then, you know, you take a brief detour to account for that, and but it still takes words. And you know, some then those, sometimes some of those, that detour that you've done, you have to go back into your narrative and lay the groundwork for it. Yeah. Which can add to your work count even more. So you could wind up with you know a little tiny, just a, just a little like a, sometimes it's a, a little rich world building detail or an interesting um, interaction between characters that frames something out really well or whatever. But to lay the lay it all in correctly, you you know tack on two or three thousand words. Okay. So, but it's not. Yeah, but it's definitely not that high level. The Sith War happens, kind of thing. Um, every, although every once in a while, I will, I will put a big plot point in that is going to take me two or three chapters, and it's because, and I know it's just kind of one big thing, and so it'll just, it'll take me like two chapters to get through it. So I'll be like, okay, that's like ten thousand words. And if in my head it's like this one big thing that has to handle be handled like a trial or something and I know it's going to be big I might say okay I know it's be 10,000 words but it's one line item in my plot however I will have a lot of scene notes that are not plot points but it's more like scene notes for how that scene is supposed to go so you know it's just kind of like a different way of approaching it See, if I'm going to do an accurate word count estimate, I need to get into it. I just can't say the trial takes place. I need to um, look at my plot points for the trial and see how that's going to go and see how many plot points I have inside my trial to say, okay, um, if I'm going to have these two witnesses on the uh, testify and then there's going to be this discussion, um, then the, you know, wh- 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 wherever I am in the world building as far as what kind of story it is, if it's a tribunal or or if it's a trial on Harry Potter or and so these, this all, this all comes into play and for so for me I need a I need a bigger outline um, for an event like that. But the other side of it is is if it's an event in canon, like in Small Magic in my in my storyboard for Small Magic, um, my next two chapters. I just put uh, the Battle of the Five Armies <laughs> <laughs> because that's a canon event, right? And so that um, could be why I'm not writing it. I, I I might need to go back and do some more event plotting just to kind of smooth that out. Because um, right now, um, Harry and um, Flitwick are 
making giant versions of Duran the Deathless. So, but this this is kind of an example of how people's plotting process evolves in a way that works for them and um, is really organic. That not everybody's there's not really a cookie cutter way to do it, except try things and see what works. Because getting into the detailed um, event plotting for like a big thing like a trial. Um, doesn't really gel for me, but then I'll have four or five pages of scene notes for it that aren't exactly an event plot, but it sort of is doing the same thing Kira's doing, just in a different way. It's more of a narrative approach to um, doing the event plot for a trial without, with, you know, it's kind of like, it's like writing a synopsis of what's going to happen, and sometimes that's where I go, is to a um, wordy way of explaining what I'm doing. Because when I some some of my early plotting was writing really long abstracts about what I was going to be doing. I mean, so it's, that's why I kind of have you know like a, a little bit of a hybrid model that works for me. And um, that's, that's what you need ultimately. Yeah. And that's ultimately what you need is a method that works exactly for you, just the way you want, and it gives you what you need to um, to move through your story. And you get that through experience and through trial and error. Because no one can give you just a magic solution to that and say, here, do this every time it will work. <laughs> because that's not yeah. even true for me. Sometimes my process doesn't work. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> that kind of hurts my feelings. <laughs> and sometimes it works like gangbusters. You just don't know what you're going to get until you get there. Because writing is a very organic process. Yeah, and it has to work for your brain type. Like nobody's the exact same blend of left and right brain orientation and um, visual versus audio. I mean, every brain's wired differently. So um, it's worth trying things and keeping the things that really gelled really well and trying to build on them. Okay, so the next question is, you often talk about in podcasts when things are going wrong in a fic or if it just isn't working and how you realize what is wrong, whether it's POV, characterization, or pacing. Can you give some more details on how exactly you determine whether it is one kind of issue versus another if you're not sure what the problem is? Sometimes you can't. So you need an outside perspective. And, and this is where you need an alpha reader that you trust really well, that you, that you trust a lot to to tell you where, where where you've got an issue that you just can't see for yourself. And sometimes, like, if my if my pacing is off in a, a scene or, or in, a, in an overall story, I get this anxiety. I mean, my own, my, my own pacing will make me anxious. And I think this could be a function of my OCD. Um, but if I'm reacting badly to, if, if I'm getting anxious about how the events are moving in my story, um, then I know I have a pacing problem. If I'm having a hard time writing a character or getting in a character's headspace or justifying my character's actions in my narrative, then I have a characterization problem. If I can't get the scene out onto the page, I'll step back and say, okay, am I using the right POV? Now, a lot of times the only way you can determine if you're using the wrong POV is to try writing it from a different POV. 
And yeah. that's really difficult if you're writing in first person or if you're writing in a third person limited, um, like, like we did ages ago. Um, and then you have to ask yourself, okay, if you only have one character POV to work with and the scene's not working, and then why isn't the scene working? And if it's not working, it's not gelling for you, is it necessary? Do you need it? Does it give you, does it forward your story or can you delete it and move on? Yeah, can you get that information in another way? Um, for me, I mean, sometimes I, I, I kind of recognize the generalities of which kind of problem I'm having, but it does, things don't always fit nicely into little boxes. Typically, I trip into plot holes. I'm usually pretty good about not having plot holes. So when they're there, I usually stumble into them while I'm writing, and I see it immediately for what it is, and I kind of face palm and then take a step back. So plot holes are usually not what's tripping me up. So I can almost discount that. I say almost because, of course, there's corner cases where it has been a plot hole. But usually what happens, I am writing, and I go, oh, fuck, I just gave myself a plot hole. So um, and it's just like, <laughs> and sometimes like hitting you literally a wall. say it out loud. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So headphones go um, off. You get up. You walk away. Get a beer. Right, mm-hmm. <laughs> right, Kira, and say, "Oh my God, I hit the wall. I've got, I've got a plot hole. I don't know what to do about it." And the problem is, when I trip into a plot hole that way, it feels bigger than it is usually. And so that's where perspective really helps is to get somebody who, who does not see it as the catastrophe that you see it as. Because seeing a plot hole from, you know, from before you even start is like, oh, here's how I'm going to address that. So clever and da 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 But when you're writing and you just tripped into that plot hole face first, it's like, oh, this is, I'm never getting out of this plot hole. <laughs> so, she did have one um, like that. And she messaged me and I was like, okay, but you're not accounting for the other characters' general disposition and actions. Yeah, and all of a sudden there was no plot hole. There actually wasn't a plot hole, but I really thought there was. Um, <laughs> so, but when it's um, when it's characterization, when it's usually usually characterization, when I'm having a problem with character issue, I feel like I've hit the wall with the story. Um, it, it just isn't working. That and sometimes that's point of view, but more often than not, uh, hitting the wall hard of the story is a function of I've got a characterization problem. Um, if it's just it, it, if, but if it's just the scene isn't working, that's usually point of view. Um, if I'm bored, like really bored, or the story feels bleh, that's usually pacing. Yeah. So I kind of recognize based on my reaction to my own writing which problem I'm having, but like I said, I, I don't, it's not like to me like a formula because sometimes my own mood affects that. Like everything I'm writing feels blah. Um, but usually assuming all other, you know, taking, making, you know, all of making everything else equal. Um, the, that's kind of how I tell where I'm at. Um, is if I, if I just story just feels kind of blah to me, that's, Usually I've got like a pacing issue. Um, So that's kind of how I pick it apart. Um, But it just takes, it takes um, having tripped and fallen 
and going, this isn't working and I don't know why, repeatedly and getting other people's feedback to help me develop that perspective about being able to recognize, oh, yeah, I've, I've now tripped 50 times and, you know, 75% of the time when it was a hard, I hit the wall and I don't know why, it was a characterization problem. You know, when the scene just wasn't working and I couldn't figure out why, most of the time it was POV, that kind of thing. So it's just, you just kind of like figure out your own rhythm. But I would say for 100% sure, I would never figure it out my own rhythm if I had never gotten somebody else's help. Because it is so hard when you're, when you're stuck in your own head to sort this stuff out. And sometimes just verbalizing it, you'll figure it out even as you're saying the words out loud. Because it is so different how your brain processes what you hear versus what you think. So. I'd agree. A lot of times just like just saying my idea idea out loud, I'd be like, No, that's stupid. Or no, that's really fantastic. Why do I think that was boring? Because it's just it's a it's a brain quirk, I guess. I don't know. <clears throat> it has to do with the way our brains process um information. Um and it processes information differently when you're seeing it or hearing it, um, versus just what you're thinking, you know. You stimulate your brain differently. So trying a different method of working the information out can dramatically change your results. Um, there's actually a whole article. If you read, uh, yeah, if you read, there are some articles about their uh, science, in science journals and stuff about the, um, the cognitive benefits of reading out loud or talking to yourself and why that's actually good for you. So if you're curious about how the brain works in that regard, just you can Google the science behind talking to yourself. Okay, there was another question up above. I'm not certain if it was a serious question or not um, before we get into the most recent ones. Um, if somebody asked how you earn your rating, was that a serious question? Because I will tell you. <laughs> earn what? Yeah, there was a question. Somebody says, how do you earn your rating? What rating? I assume on a story. Like G, PG, PG-13. Oh. I'm assume. So I'll wait for whoever asked that question to tell us if it's a legit serious question. Um, but I did write it down. Um, while we're waiting on an answer on that, um, the next question was, how do you know if an idea is 3 or 4K or if it's 20 or 50K? Also, what are the steps you use to go from a 2,000-word short and expand it into 10 or even 10,000 words or even 50K, which would be um, – uh, so it was a serious question. Okay. Um, so okay. we'll come to back um, to that one after, after we talk about how to estimate, how to tell how big an idea is. I want to include the part after the questions, which is I'm having a problem writing longer fix. I can knock out two to three K fairly easily, but if I try something longer, all I get is a smart ass cursor. Um, I'm familiar with that smart ass cursor. Mine does not say anything as um, innocent as na 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 though. Um, it's more like, fuck you. <laughs> my, my cursor is rude. 
Um, yeah. So I'm, why did you think this was a good idea? Sometimes you can look at an idea, and I this honestly, and I, this is gonna fuck a cop out. You're gonna shoot your bird. You're gonna you, you can give me the finger. You can give me both fingers. It's a matter of experience. The more you do, the more you see it. And sometimes I can look at an idea and say, okay, I can tell that with these two characters, with this plot focus, and these two subplots in 20k. Provided that it's not in Harry Potter. (laughs) But when it comes to a large story, one of the things that you do is that you layer your elements. You're laying your external motivations, your internal motivations, and and your plot points and your subplots. And for a fully developed subplot, um, I try to keep a subplot to be less than, um, I guess, well, there's like, there's like subplots and there's many, like little mini issues that kind of go off a subplot. But if my story is 50K, um, I'm looking at perhaps one or two subplots that take up about 10% of the story. So if I'm looking at 100K, I'm going to need, um, to expand my characterization, to expand my, to expand my external points, to give um, my main character a lot of internal motivation to to drive the story, and I'm going to need four or five subplots. Does that make sense? It makes sense to me. Yeah. <laughs> But honestly, um, because I am a plotter, I can build or subtract. Um, and because I have written on spec for a long time, and that's when, when you write on spec as a professional, what you do is you submit a synopsis to a publisher or to an editor, and you say, okay, I can tell you this particular story, in fifth, or I can do this in 75K. Um, or if you really prefer, I can do it in 100. But if you want it in an anthology, I can do it in 25. You just let me know. <laughs> yeah. How well, I can get some money. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, the, kind of the, the, the process we're talking about, yeah, is, is more plot driven. But even if, if, if somebody who's kind of a hybrid, who's more, even people who are more pantser than plotter, still basically need to know where they're going. And what I'm about to say actually is more geared. It's not actually on, it's not actually on what, what this question's about because this would be more towards someone whose ideas are bigger than they thought they were, as opposed to someone who's trying to get to bigger ideas. Um, so, and the question actually is, is seemed to be more geared towards somebody who wants to explain, go from writing shorter stories to writing longer stories. Um, whereas this, so I'll tell you how kind of, I've worked with, I've worked with panthers a lot on how to figure out how big a story they have. And one of the things you have to do is it's not exactly plotting, but it's kind of plotting is you have to, if you know, if you can't tell me what your end game is, there's nothing I can do for you in terms of helping you estimate word count. You have to know where you're going. But once you know where you're going, just ask yourself a bunch of questions. 
What has to happen for them to get there? Don't think of it as plotting. Just think about it as, okay, so if Tony Dinozo is going to save John Garrett, well, how does that have to happen? How would that happen? What does okay. have to transpire? Okay, well, he has to he has to be in the right place at the right time to save him from work your, work your way. This is, reverse plotting is not the best way to plot, but it is a good way to estimate how big your idea is. So if you work your way backward from that idea and you keep asking yourself, okay, well, he has to be in the right place to save John. Well, okay, so he has to be in Hawaii. Well, how did he get to Hawaii? Well, let's say it had nothing to do with it, or let's say he was already in Hawaii. Well, why would he be in Hawaii? And you keep working your way back to where your start of your story is and asking yourself, well, what has to happen to make that happen? And what has? And if you've asked yourself, and if, if working back to your beginning, if you've asked yourself 20 questions and you could put 20 things that have to happen for him to be in that place, you've got a novel. I'm just saying. Because I, I think that each question could easily be um, 1,000 to 2,000 words. And if you've got 20 questions, yeah. if you've got 20 questions just to get to that moment where he saves John, which would be in the first third, you're talking something novel length. So if, it's, if you don't really have, like, all I have to do, you know, is, like, four things in order to get this happen, in order for this this critical, you know, thing to occur then what you if it's four things and that's to the climax of your story um you're looking at probably 10,000 words because you there's sort of a certain amount of words you have to have no matter what when you're building out a story so um and then you start tacking on points and don't think of them as plot points think of them as events that have to happen to your character to get them in the right place and when you're working your way backward through, well, this has to happen to get there, and this has to happen to get that, the number of times, the number of events that your character has to go through kind of informs how big your size is. And that's kind of one of the ways I work with pantsers on how to start trying to figure out how to get a more accurate word count is figuring out how many steps their characters have to go through to get to this critical thing. Um, if you don't, if, you, if say, you're one of those people who are the plotting kind of ruins the the adventure of writing, um, which I don't understand, but I I hear you saying it. <laughs> um, don't like Julie said. Don't write out a plot. Um, just write out a list of like a rough list of events. Like if you look at The Hobbit, you could say a rough list of events of the first portion of the hobbit would be gandalf comes to the shire and brings 12 dwarves with him <laughs> bilbo goes on you know bilbo signs the contract they go to Bree, they go to rivendell and so those aren't those are events they're not scene by scene structure of what happened to get them to rivendell so right. it it might help you um figure out uh, how to build a story if you're not a plotter um, and you don't want to be a plotter. And, you know, some people just aren't built to be, and that's perfectly okay. Yeah. And the reason why I say you don't want to plot in reverse like that, 
you don't want to. You can do some reverse engineering of a plot. The reason why I say you don't want to truly plot in reverse is because ripples don't happen in reverse, and you cannot fully appreciate the ripple effect of the, the consequences of the decisions that you're making, except going forward. Um, you will actually, you can actually ruin the whole ripple effect thing. You can actually reverse engineer yourself right into implausible events. So. You can do this technique to help you try to figure out how many steps have to happen to get you where you're going, but you need to sanity check those steps going forward to make sure you're applying logical consequences to every decision you've made. If you don't like the word ripple, think of them as logical consequences, you know. Um, But ripple's an awesome word. It is. Because, I mean, if you you want to think of it this way, if you're trying to figure out a reason why – a character might have frostbite on their toes, right? And you back it up to the point that, okay, you reversed it, you reverse engineered that problem to the point that they left the house in winter without their shoes on, okay? But then when you write it going forward, you fail to appreciate the logical consequence that they would have been dead from the weather you describe long before they could get frostbite on their toes. So, that's the difference between a logical consequence to it and, and trying to find a, a reason for your character to be in the situation they're in. Um, but that really didn't really answer the question, which was how do you go from writing short stories, I think was really the question, to writing mm-hmm. novels. Um, are you, um, A.D., are you a planner? Or are you a plotter or are you a pantser? Because I... Um, I don't know how an idea expands for most people when they're plotting, when they're pantsing. For me, when I have on occasion pants, just because I'm impatient to get an idea down, um, most of the time it's because I've broken some part of myself and I'm I'm stuck somewhere and I need to get my mind off, you know, my broken foot or <laughs> most often my broken feet. Um, I've broken my feet several times because of um I have a I have a condition um where the my um I have I'm I have hypermobility. So my joints um contort like sometimes upwards of 50% more than they should. So anyways, and so I've broken both my feet several times because my ankles will kind of like completely turn to the point where I could put my ankle bone pavement and still be standing up. Sorry, is that gross? That's probably gross. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) No, I... I actually have the same condition. It's not gross to me because I have it, but I only have it in my ankles, and you have it in more joints than I do. So I never um, sprain my ankle because I can do just what you just described. I can roll. I can be in a three-inch platform and roll my ankle all the way to the concrete and not get a sprained ankle. Um, yeah, um, I have flexibility exactly. in 80% of my joints. Yeah, I have it just in my ankles, um, but it does, It does. if you don't have, um, it can lead to the bones around that joint getting broken fairly easily. Yeah. Um, did Edie respond? I'm, I'm kind of up where the questions are. 
And so, let's see. I've, I've written down all the questions we got up until Edie. Um, so, Edie, how about we give an example um, about trying to expand an idea? Um, well, because sometimes it, it's not just about expanding the middle, because sometimes that can just feel like if you've got an end, usually that's, the end usually encompasses your climax. So sometimes just making it bigger in the middle isn't necessarily going to make it a bigger idea. It's just then maybe making it more words. So, Kira, why don't we talk about one or, one or two of our shorts about how we would expand that into a bigger idea? Is okay. there – talk about talk – about, um, why don't you do the one you were about to off the races with, how that would be a bigger idea for you? Finding Atlantis? Um, no, okay. the, uh, the, the mothership one. Oh, okay. So here's the thing about the, my story, the, um, Why the Hell Out at Pearl. Um, I set a situation up where Tony has all these work elements, um, and Steve has all these elements with the governor that we know that are canon, and um, Tony kind of gave Steve a heads up, right? Um, and then they go on their little, you know, they ha- they have their little hot dinner date and, you know, make breakfast plans. And so, but if I had gone past that, I would be knee deep in Tony training his people um, and Steve figuring out this thing with the governor. And I would have had all these plot points because there's all these things that need to be addressed. Chen's family, um, all these things in canon that are coming up that need to be, um, and then, you know, there's this, there's this, uh, since this is post dead air, uh, not well. It's 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 before dead air, but it was after. Um, where did I set it? You said it really early in the season. Um, Ziva's back on the team. Mm-hmm. It's but season eight, happen, but you. So season, dead air yeah, happened said, after Tony came to Hawaii. So. Right. Right. So you know. There is that whole thing about Ziva still lingering in the background and um, him having killed the dude, uh, Michael Rifkin. And um, then, you know, there's this issue with him having, you know, these, and then then there's casework that they're both going to be having. And so, and then there's the relationship that they're kind of meandering into to explore. And so, you know, I have casework, I have um, government. corruption i have um a new team that he's having to train um i have the rifkin situation kind of laying in the background and ziva maybe being an asshole um i have the governor um and whether or not she gets to live um i have woe fat uh so you know it just kind of it could it, it it literally could explode right and i would have 100k just addressing canon plot points that piss me off And if you were to just to take a stab at, because like right now the climax of your little mini, I would say, is is them getting together at the end to right have cow, have cow and a beer, and um, it's a, it's and a good high it. point. Right. But if you were to go, like if you'd written like another sentence, um, you would have, that would have been the setup. The very beginning of the rising action would have been, them getting together for for that meal. So if if that were the case, what would be just a stab in the dark? You'd be aiming to be the climax of your story. Tony 
and Steve preventing the murder of the governor so that he could arrest her. I like that. So that he could arrest her, yeah, and uh, and arrest Wofat, too. Um, (laughs) Just everybody's going to So Um, with that as the goal, you've got a lot of, of canon stuff to cover, plus all the backstory stuff to deal with with Tony that is adding tension and internal motivation from his side because you'd brought up the Abby thing being a problem. Um, so, yeah, I could easily see that going to 100,000 words. Um, and some ideas are – some ideas you know, like this is contained, it's done – and some ideas are, you know, it could be the beginning of something big. And I think one of the indicators that it's the beginning of something big is if you itch to keep working on it. If you've got your 2K and you just, you like it a lot and you could spend a lot of time in that world right there in that space, you've probably got the beginning of an idea that you could make something bigger. And what your goal is, Edie, is that you need to um, – Make a mountain of events, uh, and events build on each other. Like I set up several events in my in my little short, "Why the Hell Out at Pearl," um, that uh, have long-reaching ramifications uh, with Steve's team. Number one, that um, Tony figured out who took the money. And also that there's corruption in the HPD because it was really easy fucking to find. Mm-hmm. And the IA should have found it. Because, hello, I mean, in canon, it got stolen by his uncle um, to get his wife transplant surgery. How the hell did AI miss, um, IA miss that? They missed it because they wanted to. Oh, you know, Chin didn't st- – well, oh, really? How'd you get all that money for that really expensive surgery your wife just had? And no one in Chin's family questioned it because they didn't want the answer. So that's a big ripple that you're that I've let loose with Steve knowing what he knows because Steve isn't going to keep a lid on it. And that's not how Steve operates. So it's going to blow wide, and it's going to cause – Lots of issues in the HPD. It's going to cause lots of issues in internal affairs. It's going to cause lots of issues with Chen's family. It's just going to be... Because Steve isn't going to let Chen take one for the team. Or the family, as it as it goes. Yeah, and that and you did, you did a really good job of laying the groundwork for that. Then, you know... We have Steve looking at the governor thinking, something's not right about you. And we need to work on that. And you can make that as short or as long as you want. You can make her motivations um, personal or professional, a mixture of both. Um, is she being bribed? Is she being blackmailed? Is... Um, did she actually set up the task force so that she would get freed from her situation? Did she set up the task force so that whatever 
force was compelling her to do what she was doing would, would get caught and she would get out of it? Because she basically set Steve loose on that island to kill Wofat. So the question is, is why? What was her motivation? Did she want yeah. out of this situation she'd gotten herself into and basically gave a man who was grieving with a lot of um, pent-up anger a license to kill and let him loose on her island so that not only could he avenge his father, whom she had feelings for, but also, if she got really lucky, he might take out her problem before it became a bigger problem. You can give the more motivations you put into a situation, whether they be external motivations or internal motivations, the bigger your story will be. So you can tell a story in one sentence or you can tell a story in a half a million sentences. Yeah. Now, the story of mine that would have been the easiest for me to take off with was the first one we did. Um, the MCU one, mine was called Perspective, um, which was when Tony, the Tonys are, Tonys are going out to t- try to talk Steve out of going to join S.H.I.E.L.D. That was the easiest one for me to take off with um, because I was intrigued by the idea of Steve um, not ever getting in bed with S.H.I.E.L.D. And I had laid the foundation for Tony to become romantically involved with his um, best friend. So, that would have been a really easy one for me to continue. Um, but interestingly, I think the one that had, I think it wound up being like the most popular of the shorts that I wrote, but it was the one I think has the least potential to be continued was the other MCU one, the one I just wrote, Everybody Knows. Um, I felt like that was very contained and very finished. Even if I was marginally tempted to start writing a series of drabbles about Day's adventures with the Avengers. Um, <laughs> I think gave her some titles. Yes, we did come up with some titles. <laughs> I think my favorite was, what was it? Dave's wife is hotter than Black Widow or something like that. Yeah, um, Day thinks that was, his wife is hotter than Black Widow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that one, um, I, and I have some people mentioned they would like me to continue with that story. And I, that was, I really, I really liked what I did with that story. Uh, it was the longest by far of them, but it also felt the most finished. So I, I, could I expand that into a bigger idea? I could, but this is why I talk about the kind of the itching to work on it thing is I could come up with a plot that would work from where I left that. But there are other ideas that I'm much more tempted to do that work with, where the path to it being bigger is much more obvious to me. And, Edie, you might also try writing in an episode format. If 5 or 10K is your comfort zone, um, writing 5, 10K episodes um, would allow you to build a bigger story, but also keep your um, writing comfort level in place. And also mm-hmm. building a series that way would also um, give you the tools you need to later uh, build a novel. Because really the Sentinels of Atlantis, the first season of Sentinels of Atlantis, is one gi- it's just one ginormous novel. 
But episodes are great because they allow you to um, do some shenanigans with POV that you shouldn't do in the ginormous novel. Right. Just saying. And also, um, it, 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 you, you just you have, you have little building blocks. And so, like, I treat each chapter like a building block, but I also treat each episode in a series format like a building block, like, like I'm building a big house. So, um, next question. We'll go back to the how you earn your rating question. And the question was, how do you earn your rating? And how low can I go before someone screams foul? Um As long as you're minding your warnings and you're not doing content on the site that is strictly forbidden as far as, like, Rough Trade goes or Quantum Bang, um, I follow the the kind of, like, the movie rating thing. Like, um, if I'm using a lot of adult language and some adult themes, it's PG-13. If I'm using sexually explicit language, it's R. If I'm writing what I would call erotica, I would go NC-17. Um, but I would also go NC-17 if something was explicitly violent or if there was a murder of, um, or if there was a murder. Like, I would have, even without all the filthy sex and darkly lull, still rated it NC-17 because of all the murder. It was, it was a buffet of murder. Um, it yeah, was a buffet I, of murder. I, and I don't just I don't necessarily rate things NC seventeen just because they've got sex on them. It has to be explicit sex. So, um, so I think that's that. And let's see, um, the next question is, um, how do you create a plot arc and decide which way the story is going to go, rather than just writing aimlessly and waiting for the story to tell itself? I don't because I'm not a pantser. Um, and even when I'm pantsing, like I said, my my events are pretty much planned out in my head. I just was not yeah. patient enough to write it down. Yeah, my version of pantsing is still plotted in my head. Even if I just, you know, sit down and... I mean, the, the last time I could think of that it, like it was word vomit, it doesn't usually get more than like 5,000 words of word vomit before I stop and do the chin tap and go, okay, what am I doing with this? <laughs> I mean, sometimes that just happens where you just, you get an idea and you just start writing something. <laughs> um, but <laughs> yeah, um, we have talked a little bit about anthropomorphizing your process, but that's a new way to t- say it. Um <sighs> Mm, 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 mm. You're just you're just on point tonight, Dart. I just have to say you're, you're on point. Um, um, but in terms of um, I don't have a lot of patience for meandering um with myself, much less with anybody else. So if I'm not patient with my own meandering, um, although I did devote two thousand words to office furniture once, but um, and I but notice I'm not was not patient with that. I was not patient no. with that. I was like, what the fuck am I doing? Um, so if I tend to get impatient with my own meandering, I don't have a lot of patience for anybody else's. Uh, so, but I will admit, I'm an impatient reader and I'm an impatient writer. 
I don't like getting wrapped around the axle, and I don't like reading stuff that's wrapped around the axle. And I can tell when someone's meandering. Trust me, I can tell. Because uh, so, it's boring. But what it you is boring. need to establish, whether you write it down or not, is a – even when I'm, like, pantsing these little shorts, I know my beginning, my middle, and my end before I start. Last night, we were talking, I was talking to Margaret Couplet about um, her process, and she said, um, she did a really good in, um, metaphor about how Julie and I um, create a map um, with the mountains and the rivers and the trees, and, you know, she just basically has, you know, a path with an X on it. <laughs> Very little topography on her map, but I need I need to know where the where the rivers are and where the mountains are and where the trees are and how the trees are and what kind of trees they have and is is there a bird living in that tree? I need to know. Yeah. I thought it when she said that last night I laughed because if you guys have seen Jumanji Welcome to the Jungle and they had that map where the next level didn't expose itself until they'd completed a level. Um that's what I was visualizing when she was thinking, talking about like the panting process where it's like, okay, well I've completed the transportation shed. Now what? <laughs> um, but think about, um, we sure do. Um, <laughs> but what I know about my story and what I share with my readers about my story are two entirely different things. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, I when we talk about plotting, if we, we might say something long, and we talked about this actually quite in depth in another podcast, um, is that when we talk about plotting, we, we'll talk about what the climax of the story, or you know, the goal, motivation, the conflict, or the internal motivators and the external motivators, and that kind of thing. But if you're not comfortable in that space and having that conversation yourself, ask yourself a different question. Ask yourself what the purpose of your story is. What is the point of it? You don't have to, if you can't identify exactly what moment is going to be your climax, ask yourself if you at least know what you're writing and why. And if you can't answer that, then I, you, you're so, such a diehard pantser that I don't know how to help you. But if you can answer the question what your point is, what your purpose is, then when you're trying to decide what to do so that you don't meander, is ask yourself when you sit down to write the next scene, does what I'm about to write serve my purpose? And if the answer is no, then you're not on task and you need to rethink it. Since I start with a question, um, And my question usually is, okay, this event happened. How do I make this better for my character? My character wants this. How does my character get this? And then we're off to the races. And sometimes we will have a merry chase. A very merry chase. <laughs> and if you don't get that, you don't deserve to. 
Um, okay, should we go to the ne- should we go to the next question? Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, honestly, I have a hard time directing a pantser um, in their creative process because it's so alien to me not to have any idea where I'm going to go when I sit down to write. Um, and so, yeah, so I, I, I hope that um, our answer was. I would say though that regardless of what kind of writer you are. Um, how is it phrased? Um, writing aimlessly and waiting for the story to tell itself. The story will never tell itself. You will always be telling the story. And I think you disempower yourself if you think the story is telling itself. Because it is easier to control the direction you're going when you know you're in charge of it. You may be surprised by your own cre- you may be surprised by your own creativity. You may be astonished at some of the things you think of, but don't think they're coming from outside of you. And I say this in an empowering way because all those wonderful things that you come up with, that you shock yourself with or whatever, that all came from you. It didn't come from some ephemeral muse. That was you. And so embrace it and know that you're steering the ship. And sometimes you're surprised by our own psyche or our own creativity. That can be surprising, and that's okay. But to, have, to, to like, disassociate yourself from it, um, I think, robs you of taking pride in your own creativity and in, in, in developing um, your skills. So um, I know people say that kind of thing flippantly about a story writing itself, but I would never I just would never personally say something like that flippantly because I'm very proud of my writing and I put a lot of work into it and it doesn't write itself. I have had work I have had stories just kind of pour out of me. I've been very very inspired by an idea. Um but no, I don't um I don't believe in the muse situation thing and um I don't like to hear people talk about their muse. Cause I, it, the only thing worse is when people tell me their characters are doing shit without their permission. No, they're not. No, they're not. <laughs> unless you, unless you, unless you've got a personality disorder. I'm not laughing at that part, but it did kind of amuse me the idea that you sit down to write and your alternate personality's written something you don't remember writing. Oh yeah, that'd be freaky, wouldn't it? You're co-writing a story with your own alternate personality. Although I do think um, your characters might be doing some things without your permission if you're playing The Sims. But other than that, <laughs> you did Man. it. Kira, Kira Sim has not been behaving lately. No, he got abducted by aliens and he came back pregnant and I was freaked out. I was like, well, what if it's not a consensual alien baby? And then I I just refused to save the game because, like, you know, I couldn't make him have an alien rape baby because what if he didn't consent to that? What if he didn't ask for the anal probe, right? So I didn't save it. And I'll be damned if the next time I played it, that motherfucker didn't go back out into the yard and look at the telescope and get kidnapped by aliens again. (laughs) If he comes back pregnant this time, he's keeping that baby. (laughs) 
So if it's Sims, yes, your characters may very well be doing stuff that you don't want them to do or that you didn't plan for them to do. But otherwise, um, we actually also talked about the um, um, what's happening when you think your characters are doing things you don't want them to do is that you fundamentally had a characterization issue in the way you plan things out and you are course correcting for your own bad planning and it seems like your characters have gone off the reservation. Um, when in fact, it more likely is that you are, sub, you know, in a subconsciously, subconsciously picking up on a flaw in your planning and correcting it. So, you know, be proud of your foresight and embrace it and quit blaming the characters for doing shit you didn't want them to do. Okay. Uh, if that didn't answer the question, whoever had it, I don't remember anymore, um, let us know. But I will go on to the next one for now. You find yourself doing a retelling of known storylines, Beating the Beast, Hero's Journey, Puss in Boots. Do you embrace it, embrace or twist or try? Do you embrace it, twist or try and write away from it? Um, We've talked before about how there are basically seven stories. <laughs> And in an infinite number of ways to tell them. Um, and honestly, you can pick out any piece of media um, and assign one of those seven element stories to that piece of media. Um, it is just the way it is. It's, it's, our, it's our humanity. And it's the expression of our humanity, whether it's the hero's journey or the beauty and the beast or the Cinderella or um, Sleeping Beauty. And, you know, it's, it's, it, it is what it is. Um, but earlier in a podcast we talked about being original for the sake of being original it's not a virtue I don't let I don't let my showers I don't let my sims woohoo in the shower because they break it every time and that's a lot of work and money I don't allow woohooing in the shower. Well, there's this woohoo bush in the public gardens that really upsets me. <laughs> there's just something don't wrong touch, with that. Don't don't touch that bush. Um, <laughs> I I honestly okay. So the same person who asked the question said they worry about falling into a rut. Um, because, like, the readers will get bored because they already know where it's going. Um, don't worry about if your readers are going to get bored. Unless, you know, you're going to get paid for this, You like your publisher can't afford for you to get boring. That's something different. But in general, don't worry about that aspect of it. If you haven't finished exploring a theme, you explore it as many times as you need to. And anybody who doesn't want to read it doesn't have to read it. I am so not done exploring dead air. I don't care who gets bored with it. And I have had readers say something to me like, oh, another dead air story. Like, oh, you're still exploring this. I'm like, yeah, shut up. And that was when I'd only done it like three times. How many times have I done it? I've been like, bitch, I'm going to write a dead air story every day for the next week. I don't care if you don't like it. I'm not even going to tell you it's dead air until you're in the middle of it. Um, <laughs> sometimes 
sometimes I feel derivative of my own work, but then I go, who gives a shit? It's my shit. I can be derivative of myself. Um, but everything, you know, I said that Kira and I were talking about being derivative one day, and she said everything's derivative. <laughs> like, that's true, because there are only so many stories out there. Um, and it's uh, I, think I said this of, once in actually in a, in a, in a writing class, because I did say, I did tell the class um, I was presenting that everything is derivative. And this person in um, front of the room, bless her heart, she said, not everything. I said, oh, yeah, name one thing. And she said, the Bible. I said, are you serious? <laughs> I said, do you have any idea how many virgin birth myths there are across this planet? You don't think Jesus was the first one, do you? And the whole class just busted out laughing. And I felt bad, but she started it. Just saying. <laughs> and so people around the room started pointing out, you know, the, um, the virgin birth myth in Egypt and um, all of, you know, um, Zeus's progeny being born of um, uh, magical <laughs> circumstances and swans and shit <laughs> and how Aphrodite sprung for, you know, from his forehead. And you, well, the thing is, is it's absolutely true. Everything is derivative. So, yeah. So it's, it's a case of, I think sometimes you, now, if what you're worried about is that you're not pushing yourself and that you're just relying on the same tropes, you know, and only you can answer if you're exploring something because you're not done with it or are you exploring it because you can't be bothered to do anything else. If you're bored with your own thing, that is completely different than worrying about your readers being bored of it. Um I don't care if my readers are bored with the things I'm exploring. The question is if I'm I write for me, as long as you yeah. write for me, um, write for you. I don't, but you don't have to I was like, I don't too. write for you. Um, <laughs> bitch. <laughs> it, oh, maybe, maybe on your birthday, but otherwise, no. <laughs> <laughs> but no, seriously, write for yourself. Um, and if you're not getting paid for it, that, that's more than enough. So, I mean, if you feel like you want to push yourself to explore something new, I mean, and when it comes to world building, if you reuse um, an element of your world building, and you come up with some good world building and you want to use it repeatedly, because sometimes we come up with, with the good thing the first time, and we don't ever come up with anything as good the next time, so why not just reuse what you already did? Um, I don't feel like I need to reinvent the wheel for the sake of being original. Um, one of my shorts, I think. Yeah, one of my shorts. Um, basically, someone kind of, it was it was the first one, the perspective. Someone kind of called me out on it. It was like I had just kind of, you know, regurgitated some of the stuff I'd used in Century. Um, and I was like, well, so what? It's my shit. I can regurgitate it if I want to. <laughs> um, exactly. It is your shit. I can use I can use Tony working in intelligence as many times as I damn well please. I don't have to just do it once. So I don't really care if people get frustrated with or fed up with or think, oh, there's nothing original here. 
Believe me, you, you should see my facial expression right now. Um, when I come up with something that really gels in my head about a character or about someone's background or a piece of world building, why would I want to just do that once? I really liked it. I'm going to do it again. So And again and again. And again. And I'll probably loan it out for parties, too, because if I like it enough, I want other people to do it, too. So And again. Yeah. So do what, um, write what makes you happy. Um, if you want to explore something a bazillion times, um, explore it. Um, and, but if I was writing something, to kind of go back to your original question, if I was writing something and I sort of hadn't noticed that I was like doing like a, um, like let's say I hadn't noticed that I was doing kind of like a, a retelling of Pride and Prejudice or something. Um, I would at least, once I noticed, I would at least stop and think about it. Um, I wouldn't change it for the sake of changing it, but I would at least ponder what I was doing and, you know, make sure I wasn't being, like, too literally Pride and Prejudice or something. I don't know. Um, I usually like to be more aware of what I'm I'm doing when I'm doing something like that. Um, but if I'm doing it on purpose, um, I wouldn't stop just because I noticed it. But I would at least consider it, consider what I was doing and making sure that I was writing what I was writing with deliberation and not accidentally. So mostly because I don't like other people to have insight into my writing that I haven't had myself. So that's it. Um But I guess of the three things that you would um, embrace, twist away from it, or try to rewrite away from it, uh, I would just embrace whatever. Usually my answer is to embrace whatever it is I want to write. That's usually what I do. Writing for other people a long time ago, unless I'm getting paid for it. So when it comes to fandom, I do exactly what I want to, when I want to, to make myself happy. End of. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, the next question... I'm just going to start by to preface this by saying that I have very strong opinions about this, and I'm pretty sure Kira does too. So you may not get the answer you want, but I'm going to do my best to have an open mind here. Um, say you have a short but necessary POV from an outside observer, not like not the two or three main characters, but when you transition back to the normal POV, you have to backtrack to get their view of something that had just happened. How do you transition back? start a new chapter, even if it's the previous chapter is short, or can you just make it evident that the switch is taking place at the same time as the previous POV? Um, first. Um, look, my, wait, wait. My, my skin just crawled off my body, and it's like right. in Florida, okay? It's in Florida <laughs> right now. What? 
I yeah, I my first thought is that it's hard for me to answer you about the mechanics of it when I would say don't do it at all. Theory of the necessary outsider POV. So that's information you can give your characters in a conversation. Um you don't need their POV to be physically with the reader. They can tell your other characters how they feel about something. Um, the only thing worse than a stray third point of view that you that you see once and never see again um, is the retelling of a scene. That just hurts my feelings. <laughs> I just can't. I just can't. I can't. My skin has now left the continent. It is in the ocean. <laughs> it's never coming back. Yeah, there are some mechanics you can use to get in an outsider POV, like um, uh, somebody in the chat mentioned, um, like snippets of somebody's diary that were at the top of each chapter. If somebody could find somebody's diary or a letter and there's a piece of it that's read or something, there are ways to get that outsider perspective in, um, a recorded conversation, um, in Harry Potter, you have memory. memories. Um, so there are ways to deal with that outsider point of view. Uh, sometimes I've I've done some experiments with doing more, what I would say, more than necessary point of view. Um, and when it when it comes to most fiction, if you're not writing in an omniscient point of view, you get two or three points of view. Um, and if a story is, if, if an, another point of view is absolutely critically necessary, you get it in the prologue or the epilogue, and that's pretty much it. And there is a good foundation for doing prologues and epilogues in a completely different point of view than the rest of your narrative. Um, like there are stories where, like, you'll see a prologue written from the point of view of like a a deity or something. Um, Dune that sets up, yeah, yeah. Where you, you just are getting a completely different perspective. Sometimes epilogues are written from a very distant point of view, like a like a third party who is seeing your characters from an object perspective. That's a very different thing than just in the course of your story, you're randomly throwing in a point of view. And even if even if my let's say I have two main characters. If one of those main characters only gets a point of view for one scene, they don't get a character. They don't get a point of view at all. That story is told from one character's point of view. Typically, when you're giving multiple points of view, there has to be. It's not about equality, but there has to be some level of balance where you truly are seeing the story from two points of view. And if you're just giving them one but, scene, you didn't need that point of view. But I'll tell you this: I will take a third one-time point of view any day over me reading the same scene twice from two different points of view. I I agree. I agree. But either I don't I don't think either are good ideas. Either things either things are good ideas to do. They're um, most especially not good to do together. <laughs> But being told the same scene over again from a different point of view is destroyer. It is like you talk about whether or not it's offensive to me as a reader, but as a writer, as far as mechanics goes, it's number one, it's destroying your pace. Number two, it's just, it's detracting from the power of the original scene. 
Number three, it's going to be very distracting to your reader. And also, it might It's corrosive to your um, to your content because you've set this this scene up from one point of view, and your reader has gotten everything they need out of it. Right? They they form their opinions about what happened in this, whether it's unconscious or conscious, on their part. They're ready for the next scene, and then they get smacked in the face again with the same scene with a different point of view, and now their um, their opinions are going to have to be reshaped, and it's going to be. You know, beyond the fact that it's jarring and distracting, it's going to be very irritating as well. Um, and then it also will just take away from the power of the thing you originally created. So, no. Okay, so the the question apparently actually, I misinterpreted the question, which is what they mean is that it's two different scenes. One is that they're taking place at the same time. So it's a question of mechanics of how do you write two events taking place at the same time um, where that actually isn't really that much of a problem where you books and movies, TV shows, they do that thing where you see a scene in, you know, Texas and then the next scene is that same time period in California. Um, and, and there are ways you can do that um, to, like, indicate, to make it clear that you are, you know, with, like, time tags or, you know, making it in your character's narrative, establishing what time it is so that the reader knows that it's the same time period as the events that happened before. Um, but I – so that's not retelling the same. So that is, there, but there's examples of how to do that. And actually, a lot of – it's not uncommon – if you have two main characters that are not in the same geography, that you'll be seeing what they're both doing and have basically an overlapping timeline. Um, so that's just a, a little bit of a, a, like a logistical mechanics issue to work out. But I still would caution you against throwing in a POV just for one scene um, in a story. It, it just from a mechanics point of If you're running um, events simultaneously from two different character points of view because they're in different locations. What you want to definitely make sure you do is to be religious about your scene breaks um, and your continuity. Because one of the most glaring mistakes I ever saw in somebody's work was that she wrote uh, chapter one from one point of view started in the morning. Chapter two from another point of view started in the morning. Okay. So during the day, the character A in Chapter A had a conversation with character B on the phone that was super important. That conversation and phone call was not even mentioned in Chapter 2. It's an immense plot point. It, I was like, but... When Dude A was was calling dude B in chapter two, dude B was asleep. So <laughs> you need to make sure when you're doing something like that, that your continuity is tight as fuck because it can be, I mean, you get someone like me who's going to notice that when character A was calling character B in his chapter, character B was asleep. That's, that's not, 
that's not going to work. No, you can't have you can't have stuff like that. So continuity is super 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 important. Yeah, if you really, I mean. I would look for other ways, get some advice about do you really need that point of view and make sure it's, I mean, it's got, it would have to be mission critical. Like there was no other way for me to accomplish what I need to accomplish for my story for me to give a character a single scene in their point of view. It's just, mm. even the stories I've written where um, I had too many points of view, everybody had more than one scene. So it's, yeah, it, it's a bit of a head tilter for me to to justify. I read a story once where a character had a POV for two paragraphs. I rage quit it. I was so furious. I was like, "What the fuck?" The only thing <laughs> no worse than that is giving the the dog a POV for oh, like yeah. a half second. Uh-huh. Yeah, no. Um, okay, so question is, and it probably will be the last one we have time for, is. Somebody read yes, an we have 19 minutes. where the author was talking about multiple POVs to circle around a very large point story that could not be encompassed by one or two points of view. Uh, and then they said they've read several stories that handle it well and others that fail miserably. And what are the thoughts? It would probably not be romance, for starters. Um, the the lim- very limited POV is really a function of specifically um, any, most romance. And, and it's related to subgenres. But there are some genres where you do wind up with more points of view. Um, but what I would say is that when you have, and I'm sure Kira has a, probably a different perspective on this, is if you really have a very large, inter- complicated plot, and you're, you have to like move to like multiple locations or multiple jobs, I mean, you could see something like this in an apocalypse-type story, where you've got like five or six different groups of people that are slowly converging together and you are um, moving between the different groups. Um, I could see why you could have, but here's the way I would approach that. And one of the things that I think makes a key difference in managing the POV dynamics is you get one point of view for each group, not multiple points of view in each group. You have to contain the number of POVs when you've got that much dispersion that way the audience has a lens that they're focusing through for each of these components coming together. And then when they're together, you don't get to branch out um, into more points of view. You still, let's say there's six, six groups of people coming together. You get six points of view. And when they come together and they're all together, I would probably try to whittle that down so that you're like in a given chapter, you're not focusing on any more than two of those points of view in any given chapter, uh, but you never get more than those six. I, you lack focus, terribly lack focus. And that's just POV mechanics. That doesn't even count. Like how do you avoid telling repetitious information? How do you handle not repeating yourself over and over again as information. Because a lot of times when you have disparate groups that are all getting the same information at different times in different ways, it can be very tedious when the author repeats the information six times because the audience doesn't need to hear it six times, but they might need to hear it twice. So how does the audience, how does the author balance out how to remind the 
audience of critical information without overloading on the repetition. And, you know, so there's different, there's different mechanics, different, different writing skills that go into juggling um, an epic like that where you've got a lot of um, either disparate geographies or you've got different disparate groups of people or people on different planets, um, whatever it is. There's a lot of different skills that go into making that work well, but strictly from a POV lens, you've got to got to be focused in whatever the more POV areas. The more the more PV, POVs you cram into your story, the more diluted your narrative will be. And as a writer, your goal is to provide um, a rich narrative. And when it comes to genre work like fantasy and science fiction where you have these large groups of people moving around your plot, you have different locations and planets and all that stuff, it's really super important not to dilute your narrative because you want your audience to invest in your characters. And if you've got 25 POVs, they're not invested in anybody. Rocks could fall and kill everybody and they're not going to give a shit. You know, they're not invested in your character. They're not going to continue to read. And professionally speaking, if they managed to plow through one book, they won't be picking up another to buy. They're going to leave a shitty review for you on Amazon. They won't even know why they don't like your book. They just won't like it. They'll say it's boring and, and it, it dragged on forever and I couldn't finish it. And then they won't buy your sequel. I'm already feeling sad. <laughs> because you because the point is to make your reader invest in your story. And that investment comes through characterization. And if you're throwing 10, 15 characters at them, they're not going to get that investment. It's like watching the original Sleeping Beauty. And being so invested in the princess because it's her story. But then you turn around and watch something like Maleficent and you see it from her point of view and suddenly you're fucking furious. How dare they? <laughs> How yeah. dare they kill her with a dr- How dare they stab her with a sword? I'm so mad. And it, it wasn't even in that movie, but like it just kind of like a really good example of this is The Closer. I loved, I fucking loved The Closer. I thought Kira Sedgwick did an amazing job in that show. I loved her. When they brought on Mary McDonald, I love her too. I was really excited to get her, but then she was like, she was kind of sparring with Brenda, and I wasn't on board with that. And I was like, don't be mean, Sharon. What? No, Sharon, no. And then, okay, so The Closer ends, and we get major crimes. About halfway through Major Crimes, I got really stupidly invested in Sharon as a character. And so I was re-watching um, the last few seasons of The Closer, and I got mad at Brenda for being mean to Sharon. But when originally I was pissed all the time at Sharon for being mean to Brenda. It's all about perspective. Yeah. But they're both awesome shows. I highly recommend them. They are very good. Point of view, it cannot be overstated. It's important. Um, and it's worth doing point of view experiments. It's worth trying it weird ways and seeing what did or didn't work about it. It's worth, um, 
but there are just usually some kind of immutable rules about point of view um, that you have to be very skillful with point of view to break those rules. And the classic example is Kira's example of Amelia um, Ugh. Peabody. Amelia Peabody. Yeah. Amelia Peabody, Elizabeth Peters. I was, about, I was about to say Amelia Peters. I go, that's not right. <laughs> that's not accurate. Um, <laughs> that I'm conflating things. Um, no, yeah, there's some really skillful point of view work there um, that someone might on the surface say is breaking some rules about point of view. But I would say that's somebody who has a keen understanding of point of view to know how to bend those rules into something that works, that, that wouldn't normally fit any kind of um, traditional um, POV paradigm. So, but I can't think of any kind of POV paradigm that gives like in a, in a something novel length, like a single scene to um, a random, a non-main character. Um, it'd be sort of like, you know, you're reading a story, um, like let's say in Teen Wolf or something and like out of the blue, there's like one scene that's told from a waitress's point of view. It's like, why? <laughs> I mean, it might be, she might be the only person who was coherent when shit went down in the diner, but it still would be better that they, that, that you not show it on, on screen because maybe nobody was coherent. Right. But it'd still be better that they piece it together later in witness statements or something than to throw in a random outsider point of view. Because, you know, when I see a random point of view, I think to myself, is she the bad guy? What's going to happen? Why is she here? Why well, why are we in her POV? And then she never comes back. And then I'm like, why the fuck did that scene even happen? It served no purpose. That wasn't foreshadowing. That was just bad craft. Now I'm mad. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, read, I, I read something this author on... skills they didn't have. I started reading something recently um, that I've been waiting to read till it was it was finished because that's what I do. A lot of times I will follow a story that sounds interesting and I'll wait till it's finished. And I started reading it. And um, actually, I think that they could have really done with telling this in series, in a series format. Because if they told it in series format, they could have had a different point of view in every fucking episode. Um, but as it is, it's like every, if we're talking a large ensemble cast type fandom. And everybody's got a point of view. Everybody has got a point of view, and including a few random, you know, um, like service people and stuff. It is just, it's like they, they go into everybody's point of view at some point or the other. Minor characters, secondary characters, main characters. It's just, it, it is, and the story, it's a very long story, and the story would be half the length if the POV wasn't all over the place. And here's where that's a problem. It has a pacing issue <laughs> because it's longer than it needs to be because you're getting um, you're handling you know every piece of information is being dis- disseminated um, in the character's point of view that it happened in and they're all thinking about the same series of events and some of these things just aren't even interesting so while overall it's like an interesting story concept I find I find the story, the premise, and some of the world building really interesting. the The POV issues are just make it a hot mess. So you just gotta be really careful about putting stuff in. Um, every event, every POV, every detail is important, and it's supposed to carry your story. 
And if he doesn't carry your story, you don't need it. It won't bring you joy. Don't make me call Marie Kondo, Kondo, whatever her name is. Yeah. Um, I have seen stories that are told strictly from the strictly from an OC's point of view, an outsider, like a minor character, um, who's not even a character in the story. It's just like their perspective on watching. I actually avoid stories like that because I don't see the point. Um, they don't tell me the story I want to see. I, yeah. I, I need the intimacy. I, because I'm not, I mean, it's not, I'm, I'm very focused on characters. And so if I want to read about, um, you know, if I want to, if I want to read about, you know, Tony Stark and Steve Rogers, seeing them through the lens of a waitress in a diner is not giving me what I want. There's no connection with Tony and Steve. So, and I know that works for some people, and that's fine. I'm not judging that, that some people like that or want to rate it. It just doesn't work for me, um, and I, I would it would fall flat for me because I'm not invested. I, the thing is, you're supposed to be invested in your POV character, and why am I invested in in this random person? Um, and somebody had mentioned like um, the waitress in the Avengers. I wouldn't call that. Well, I assume that the, that references to the scene which or she's talking on TV, I wouldn't call that a point of view because um, anybody watching TV could have gotten that. And that's actually how they did see it is it was on TV. So I wouldn't call, um, unless you mean something else, but if you're talking about that little, that little blurb at the end where she's talking about how Captain America had saved her. Oh, you're talking about during the battle where they, well, they can do things in movies where they you see things from like the person on the ground watching Iron Man fly by, that is a lot harder to do in the written form that don't actually work well. There's a lot of things that you see in movies that don't translate very well to to books. Yeah, I people talk about um, the difference between writing a book and a script, and um, they are worlds apart. Um, I actually don't recommend people who um, who are invested in the narrative format to even try writing script writing because it um, it's a different headspace and it can really fuck you up. I tried it once and I was like, I was miserable. I was like, nope, can't do it. I do have a friend who writes scripts and so every time I have an idea about a movie, I just send him like, here, look at this. I want credit. <laughs> Yeah, give me some idea credit. Um, Go on about yourself. But when you think about the like the waitress's per- perspective during the battle, um, it was more impactful that scene during the battle where you see her being saved. It was more impactful because when when you got to that little interview where she stands up for Steve, so. I think the critical piece of that was the interview, which you could see on TV. So that is an example of how you could get that outsider point of view through to your main characters, which is that, and to your audience, which is that they see something on TV or they read something in a magazine or, you know, that something that somebody has said has turned the tide of public opinion or something like that, as opposed to showing 
that person's interaction with the battle directly. But again, this also depends on the kind of story you're telling. Because if you're if you're telling a um, a uh, a story about like seemingly six disparate people who are all working, you know, all coming together across the city, and they all are affected by some event that makes them all inhumans. Um, that's a different story, really, than like a Tony Stark, Steve Rogers romance kind of thing. But I think if you want to explore this kind of story format, that you might want to watch that series on Netflix. It's uh, um, Sense Eight. Yes, because that was done in multiple POVs, right? Um, yeah. So you Very might strange. like check multiple POVs. Check that out. I watched like um, two episodes and I just couldn't get into it. I felt like an old lady. I was like, I don't. I mean, I got it. I understood. I just didn't like it and I was like I'm supposed to like this right (laughs) I didn't (laughs) she didn't it didn't work it didn't gel it wasn't my favorite thing ever I never never got through the whole thing um but you know I tried um, two times to watch Sense8 because it's just the concept is fascinating and I love the whole idea of it and them all connected together and sharing um, abilities and experiences and I just I I don't know it just didn't quite work for you at least not you know it could be in five years you might sit down and see an episode and go oh my god well and just watch the hell now it works now it works for me yeah. You know, you can also revisit your works to when you get better about point of view, go back and read some of your old works. Um, I think the work of mine, I won't even, I won't get into it because we've got like a minute left, but I didn't have one work where I, I, at the time I did choose what I was doing with my point of view deliberately but in retrospect, there were better ways I could have done what I was deliberately trying to do. So revisiting your own decisions about POV and analyzing them down the road can help you kind of figure out what works for you and why. Okay, we're down to about nine, um, about 80 seconds. Um, and... Um... Just one more reminder that you have until tomorrow to turn in your uh, project file for Rough Trade. I will I will be sending out a reminder email to those people who have not done so. Um, hope you guys have a rest of a great rest of the weekend, and we will catch you later. Say good night, Jilly. Good night, everyone. <laughs>